VCG believes that creating climate solutions is the defining challenge of our generation. So we're working with leaders everywhere to understand and mitigate the cost of climate inaction. But we're also helping them find ways to innovate, build sustainable businesses, and stay competitive in an evolving world. Stick around to discover the many opportunities in a more sustainable global economy. Welcome to Zero. I'm Akshat Rati in Sharm el-Sheikh, Egypt. Over the past couple of days here at COP27, we heard from dozens of world leaders, from big polluting nations to sinking island states. We are on a highway to climate hell with our foot still on the accelerator. I don't need to repeat that this is the COP that needs action. I suspect that more than 40% of our debt is directly linked to the impacts of climate change. Loss and damage can no longer be swept under the rug. Show me the money might seem like a crass way of summarizing the main topic of discussion here, but it gets to the heart of what the world must do to tackle climate change. Later in the show, we'll hear from one of those world leaders, the Prime Minister of the Bahamas, Philip Davis. But first, I'm talking to Bloomberg Green's executive editor, Aaron Rutkoff. Aaron, welcome to the show. Thanks, Akshay, for having me. Now, have you subscribed to Zero on Apple Podcasts yet? Uh, I subscribe on Overcast, but I also just put it on all the other podcast apps to help your rating. Perfect. That's exactly what a good boss should do, huh? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> now, getting serious here, what have you made of the speeches so far? Well, you know, cop speeches are kind of a genre unto themselves. The sort of slogan for this one uh, is to have it be an implementation cop. And there's also been a real emphasis on the fact that it's in Africa. So there is a bit more focus on uh, the equity of finance and where the money is, as you alluded to in your intro. Uh, so you, you see that in speeches. I mean, one of the things I did today uh, before checking out the plenary um, was go to a press conference with uh, South Africa's president, uh, Cyril Ramaphosa. Um, that's been one of the big storylines everyone's been following. Um, what's going to become of the climate finance deal that's going to bring billions of dollars from the Europeans and the Americans into South Africa to retire their uh, terrible coal fleet, the makes them the 13th biggest emitter in the world. Um, and I I'd sort of hoped by checking out this press conference, I might be the reporter who was there when he announced that there was a breakthrough, uh, which was not the case. He just sort of reiterated where, where things are. But, you know, where things are is uh, the South Africans want to have more grants and or very, very discounted loans uh, because they carry a lot of sovereign debt and they don't want the retirement of their coal fleet to come with more debt strings attached. Um, and so he was reiterating that request. And that was something you heard a bunch throughout the plenary speeches today a lot of developing countries very articulately stating the fact that uh, they want more finance and they don't want more debt. In the genre of climate speeches made at COP, another theme that repeats itself is just the moral outrage of rich countries not doing enough when developing countries are suffering the most impacts. Uh, we heard it from Mia Motley, who's the Prime Minister of Barbados, who said, This world looks still too much like it did when it was part of an imperialistic empire. The global north borrows between interest rates of between 1% to 4%. The global south of 14%. And then we wonder why the Just Energy Partnerships 
are not working. I think that is something that stands out more at this COP because we're not seeing the huge new announcements of net zero targets like happened last year. The COP26 started with India's surprise announcement about their net zero goal. There was a real competition between the high emitting nations to show that they were doing the most to lower their emissions. That's not a real big texture of this part. So what fills the space where we're not seeing these big, bold declarations of what the high emitters are going to do are these, you know, discussions of equity. And, you know, rightfully so, you're hearing from the countries who are suffering the impacts of climate change, who have not benefited from development and caused emissions, making the moral claim on the whole assembly um, with the inclusion of loss and damage on the agenda for the first time. I think that will become one of the real big fixtures for the rest of the two weeks that we're here. And you were in the blue zone for all this, the place where all the action happens at COP27. What was the atmosphere like? So blue zone, you mean like the pavilions and all that? Is that yes, that's right. Okay. Uh, <laughs> that's called the blue zone? Yes. You know, to get anywhere at COP, you end up wandering through uh, a kind of surreal trade show environment and through in the blue zone. You know, every every nation in the world, basically, or every, every nation that's here has their own setup. Uh, it, it feels like, uh, you know, an electronics convention in some sense where, you know, instead of products, everyone is... Uh, got climate messaging uh, as their as the thing that they're giving away it's really cool uh but it's also really weird to see all of the booths that are just repeating the same kind of climate slogans i mean do you do you find it strange walking around the the climate booths i, I mean the money you pay shows up so the uae has a big booth in the pavilion and right opposite it is a small table that is the niger booth and so it shows up, if you have more money, you're able to tell more people in the world what it is that you're doing on climate. Yeah, the disparities that are part of all climate coverage exist within this weird microcosm of national booths. Uh, I noticed this year, maybe different from the last time, I didn't notice it at, at COP26, there seemed to be an incredibly complete representation of African countries whose booths seemed more sporadic at COP26, but often they, like to your point, had these very small, minimal booths, and then you would stop by the United States complex and it would be you know, quite grand, or Saudi Arabia's uh, booth, it was not a booth, it was like a 25% of an entire convention hall, and it was very elaborate with tons of screens and wide open space, which was at a real premium inside the Blue Zone today. You were at the COP in Glasgow last year. How do you feel about being in a beach resort town this year? Yeah, if I have to have my pick, I think it was a it was a nicer experience when COP was in a real city, when it felt like it was part of what was going on. And uh, I imagine that you've also noticed that there's just no people around who aren't participating in the COP. Uh, and that's a real big change from last year and something that makes this one feel distinctive. Um, and that absence of normal life uh, is something I, I'm just noticing a lot, but you can't complain about the warm weather and getting to be, you know, beach adjacent for a week in November. Well, thanks, Aaron, for coming on the show. Anytime, Akshat. Now, talking of beaches, after the break, I speak with the Prime Minister of the Bahamas, Philip Davis, about how his country is being affected by climate change and what parts exist for an island nation Today's leaders face many hard choices, confronted with uncertainty, cost pressures, and growing shareholder demands. 
but they don't have to choose between pursuing climate and business goals. In fact, BCG research suggests that these ambitions go hand in hand. Did you know at least 40% of executives at large organizations estimate an annual financial benefit of $100 million for meeting emissions reduction targets, according to recent BCG research? BCG also found that transitioning to the circular economy could help unlock $4.5 trillion of GDP growth by 2030. The cost of inaction, however, is profound. In fact, further analysis indicates that missing climate targets could result in an average annual EBITDA reduction of 15%. At BCG, our experts recognize the myriad benefits, from risk mitigation to first-mover advantage, that come with sustainability. Let's partner to unlock a better sustainability journey. In 2019, a Category 5 hurricane hit Abaco and Grand Bahama, two of the islands in the Bahama archipelago. This caused several billion dollars of damage. And earlier this year, you said that you expect these kinds of storms to become the norm. That's what climate change does. There's been a lot of talk around this COP about 1.5 degrees Celsius as the target, that it might be missed. What would it mean for Bahamas if 1.5 degrees Celsius is missed? Well, it'll be devastating for the Bahamas. Um, it's, it's already recognized that my country, which is an ocean state spread over 100,000 square miles, is most vulnerable to uh, the consequences of climate change. 80% of our land mass is less than three meters above sea level. The warming of the waters, the rising of the temperature, impacts marine life. Hence, it may impact our blue economy in respect to fisheries and other marine life because they're impacted by the warming of the waters. And um, we don't have any time now. It's no longer an existential threat. It's a crisis for us. And um, we can't outrun (laughs) the the consequences. And we're either going to be climate refugees or we'll find ourselves in watery graves. As you mentioned, Hurricane Dorian cost us about $3.4 billion in loss and damage. Yeah. We still don't know how many lives were lost. And we're still trying to pull ourselves out of it. Uh, if you profile our debt, I suspect that uh, more than 40% of our debt is directly linked to the impacts of climate change. Right. Now we are talking at the sidelines of COP27. We are here in a room uh, with lots of people around us focusing on loss and damage. Over the weekend, there was a breakthrough. For the first time, loss and damage is on the agenda at a COP meeting. Now, Bahama has contributed less than 0.01% of historical emissions. What will you be pushing for at this conference for loss and damage? Well, we need to have an acknowledgement first that for the Bahamas, quite apart from our uh, being less, least responsible for emissions, we also play another role. Our seagrasses, our mangroves, corals, we have become one of the largest carbon sink of the world. And so we have been the garbage collectors. And we think it's time for us to be paid for it. Um, 
And uh, what, what I'm looking forward to, first of all, is an acknowledgement that the industrialized world that became wealthy as they are today was as a direct result of their use of fossil fuel and coal. Should they not be held responsible for, for that? Now, we, we understand that there has to be a transition, and that transition may require some rethinking and reworking as to what I call the, the details and modalities as to how we arrive at uh, considering liability. And I know that they don't want um, liability to be um, a blank check. But these are things we could talk about. But at least let's acknowledge it. And, and let's look at the small island developing states like ours right, that, um, that has, has suffered so and carried the burden of the world for so long. And they're thinking that we should push liability to, to talk to 2024. And that is disappointing because it, all we're trying to do is identify <laughs> some of you know, what is really necessary to to mitigate, adapt, and to protect ourselves in the future. Yeah. How are you working with other Caribbean nations on loss and damage? Uh, we, we, are, we have a consensus on that issue. Um, in fact, in August of this year, I held a, a UNFCC conference in the Bahamas for the first time of all the Caribbean leaders so we could have a consensus on the way forward and have a single voice here in respect to what we expect. One of the outcomes of that meeting is to suggest that perhaps on oil exports, a 2% levy or tax be placed on, on oil exports and that be put in a fund to help to fund damages and losses as a result. Mia Motley, Prime Minister of Barbados, uh, who's been a great friend of yours, but yeah. also a big champion of debt relief for countries, mm-hmm. especially those affected by climate change. Uh, she has said that Barbados would have access to 18% of its national income if it were not stuck in existing debt payments. Has the Bahamas' recovery since Storm Dorian been hampered by the need to pay back its debt? The challenge with the debt issue for the small island developing states is that as soon as you start to see the light at the end of the tunnel, here comes another catastrophe. And, and what happens is that the multilaterals and lending agencies, they're not going to, 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 to donate. They expect you to borrow again. And so as you keep borrowing, your, the debt sustainability level is comes out of whack of what they expect from your country. And so... So it's a vicious cycle that you get into. So how do you break out of it? By making those responsible accountable. Those responsible accountable. That's how we do. So um, uh, Prime Minister Motley was a great friend of mine. Has a very, a very effective voice. I support her. Uh, we've been collaborating on these issues and, and her voice is being heard loud and clear. Let's come to the point you were making about blue carbon, which is the carbon that is stored in mangroves and seaweed. Bahama seagrass. Wa- seagrass. Um, the Bahamas wants to become the first country to sell blue carbon credits. And you've said something like $300 million worth uh, could be sold as a way to finance the Bahama transition. 
You've also said that those will be generated from these sea, grass and mangroves. But the offset market yeah, is going through a crisis of credibility. There are a lot of cheap offsets that don't work, uh, that have got many people questioning whether to buy offsets as a way to s solve the climate problem. Have you found willing buyers for your blue carbon credits? Well, let me start off by saying that the 300 million you speak of was an estimate by, uh, by a third party and I'd receive unsolicited offers of that amount for our carbon credits without us having even uh, um, identifying the, and verifying the, the extent of our asset. Um, we feel that it's worth much more than that. We think it's sustainable. And yes, we do. There are a number of willing buyers. I understand the offset market, I mean, the issue that's happening in the offsetting. And uh, we also have to be concerned about the offset because we, we don't want that to be used as an excuse. For companies, for example, I'm saying, well, I'm going to emit 10 tons and I'm going to buy 20 tons. And therefore, I, uh, and so embedded in any kind of arrangement has to also be the, the, um, the embed an initiative that places on the, the purchaser the, that do, does not excuse them from their commitment to reduce carbon footprint. But we do have a number of inquiries as we speak. There's already some precedent to this before... I mean, uh, green, in the green... Yes, in green spaces. So uh, in Brazil, there was the Amazon Fund that mm -hmm. was uh, funded by Norway and Germany uh, it wasn't for credits, it was simply to protect forests. Yeah, keep, yeah. Mm -hmm. Would it be possible that you may explore options which are not tied to offsetting, but just tied to protection? Well, uh, under Article 6, they speak, they speak about additionality, which is to protection, preservation. Um, we, we, um, I have another innovative thought in respect to that. We have a number of companies who believe that, oil companies that believe that in our, in our waters, I mean, we have oil deposits in our waters, and they want to drill. Um, what we, may, we, we could consider, for example, having it verified that we do, in fact, have oil reserves, and then we could cap it, and, and then say, well, look, we will not produce if you pay us for it to remain in the ground. So that is not off the, the table for us when we think about it. But I have not moved to um, engaging any of these companies yet, but that's a thought uh, we could look at. Now, the last climate commitment that Bahamas made to the United Nations, the NDC, mm -hmm. was in 2015 as a party to the Paris Agreement. All parties, including Bahamas, is required to update its ambition on climate. Mm -hmm. Bahamas contributes a very small amount, but everybody has to do its part. When will Bahamas update its NDC? Uh, it's, we've just updated it and we'll be presenting it this week. Wonderful, In that's great yeah. news. Yeah. To understand what the Bahamas' new climate commitments mean, I got to speak to one of the Prime Minister's advisors who had just sent the document to the United Nations. Literally uploaded it this morning. So I'm Dr. Rihanna Neely Murphy. I'm the director of the Department of Environmental Planning and Protection in the Bahamas. Now, the Prime Minister says that 
the goal is not being updated. It's just an updated NDC. Yes. Why? Our initial NDC was based predominantly on assistance that we would receive from the international community. And until such time, we have received very limited assistance from the international community in order to meet our efforts. We're using the Green Climate Fund and the Global Environment Facility to assist us. But a lot of that funding, you know, it's very restricted and it's very, it's slow in coming. And then coupling with the impacts of COVID, much of the work that we were supposed to do over the last two years did not get done. Um, So we are at a place where we're still looking at 30% of our forestry reserve. Um, We are looking at expanding our marine protected areas and making headways in the transportation sector, um, as well as adaptation. So we're looking, adaptation has expanded. We're looking into um, improving our coastal resilience, um, early warning systems, and et cetera, in adaption to cl- adaptation right. to climate change. And what are you doing on electricity, which tends to be the cheapest solution you can deploy now? So the Bahamas does have a 30% by 2030 goal. And I'm very proud to say that in recent years, we have made quite a lot of strides, made good headway into meeting that goal. Because Bahamas was run completely on oil-powered electricity. We were. Until 2013 or 14, we were 99% fossil fuel um, energy for for all of our electricity. For all of your electricity. Yes. And then... So we changed our energy policy in 2013 that actually allowed for us to have feed-in tariffs for renewable energy into our grid. And that, and we created programming around that. And so Bahamians really galvanized. We changed our tax structure so that people were able to get tax benefits from importing solar because we don't manufacture solar. Um, and so it has been very beneficial. Much of the private sector has taken on the, the tax for themselves. Um, and we are introducing it through our low-cost homes as well. What's the energy mix now for the The energy mix, we are about 10%, and we have taken on, unfortunately, um, due to the financial situation, we've taken on loans, which I think the Prime Minister has spoken about, the fact that we have to take on more loans to get ourselves out of the problems that we're in as a result of climate change. We're bearing this burden. So the government has taken on loans with the expectation that we will be able to pay them back as people become less reliant on fossil fuels. Right. In the updated NDC, if you're not increasing your ambition on reducing emissions, what are the things on which you are increasing ambition? So we've looked at our, we've had LIDAR done on our coastlines. So we know what is how some of the changes that are occurring across our islands. Not all of our islands. We have more work that is slated to, to be conducted across some more of the islands. But we have some better data that has fed into our process. So we can now say definitively, this is what we can do. And that data is looking at coastal erosion. Correct. Coastal erosion, the impact of sea level rise, the impact of coral bleaching. We've been impacted by um, skittle D, which is uh, stony coral tissue loss disease, which is having an, a really strong impact on our reef builders. And that has had really strong impacts on our fishing industry. So we have that kind of a data and we're equipping our scientists to go out and collect more data so that we can have policy that is driven by science. Wonderful. Now, back to the Prime Minister. 
The Bahamas is a well-known tourist destination. The country is currently building a new port that will cost $250 million and is designed for cruise ships uh, and yachts to come through. Uh, cruise ships particularly. Cruise ships particularly. And cruise ships have three times the carbon impact of flights. They're also air pollution. Bahamas has the cleanest air in the world, but cruises cause a lot of air pollution. Um, Bahamas also has a plan right now, as of the previous NDC, to reduce its emissions by 30% by 2030. Yes. You're updating that, so that yeah. ambition is becoming yeah. what now? It remains that uh, uh, the that's the ambition, but we're thinking we should be able to surpass that, but we, we're staying with the 30%. Okay. So, if that's the case, how are you going to stop the emissions from increasing well, as these... Because of cruise ships. Well, first of all, there is a, a plan afoot between in industry. You note that they'll be converting to a cleaner energy. They're going to LNG, which mm -hmm. is cleaner than the fossil fuel they're using, the, what they're using now. So yes. most cruise ships are going to be required. Still has to, carbon emissions, though. It, but it's lesser than... And what they're using now, and um, is that a condition on the port, though, or uh, are you expecting well, the industry to just do it on its own? Well, I think the U.S. government is requiring the cruise ships that come to the airport and all comes through the United States um, to be uh, basically to move to LNG, and we, we benefit through that. And this is where that offset issue arises with me, yeah. because they'd want us to pay, buy credits, and forget that they're still polluting. <laughs> but if they buy my credits, it's still lower their pollutions. What are your expectations coming out of COP27? I'm not going to give up. <laughs> I'm not going to give up. <laughs> um, I'm an optimist, but the conversations that we've been hearing leaves me less hopeful that we'll, the outcomes will be what I would like to see. Um, but at the end of the day, I'm not going to give up. We're going to hope that when I leave, we're going to leave our team behind to continue the negotiations and that something will come out of this that will move the needle. What would be your best case outcome? Uh, the best outcome for me is that countries live up to their commitments and promises. I am I'm pledge fatigue. I'm commitment fatigue. Time has come for action. If they write the check before they leave, that will be a great outcome for me. Wonderful. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to Zero. If you like the show, please rate, review, and subscribe. Tell a friend or someone who likes beaches. If you've got a suggestion for a guest or topic or something you just want us to look into, get in touch at zeropod at bloomberg.net. Also, good news. For the next two weeks while COP27 is taking place, the paywall on Bloomberg Green has been lifted. Head to bloomberg.com green to read all our latest climate coverage and everything in the archives for absolutely free. Zero's producer is Oscar Boyd and senior producer is Christine Driscoll. Our theme music is composed by Wonderly. A special thanks to Stacey Wong and Kira Bindrim for their help with these episodes. And a reminder to listen to In the City, a podcast hosted by Bloomberg TV anchor Francine Lacroix. 
I'll be joining Bloomberg contributing editor Allegra Stratton on Thursday this week on the show to talk about the UK's role at COP27. I'm Akshat Rati, back later this week with more from COP27.